everybody, this is Kale Clark, and this is the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm so glad you're with me today. We're going to continue on with our study of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. So open up your Bible to Romans chapter 5. Now, we've been talking about the doctrine of original sin, uh, which we'll get into again in just a little bit, and how Adam was essentially a type of Jesus Christ. And the way God acts in salvation history is typical, you might say, pun intended, because typology is something that we need to understand to get our biblical interpretation right. St. Augustine said that the New Testament is in the Old concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New revealed. Everything makes sense because God uses actual people, places, events, things in the Old Covenant time period to foreshadow even greater people, places, events in the new covenant time of salvation because God writes the world the way human beings write with words. The Adam-Christ typology is very, very important. And this is one thing that St. Paul brings about in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Just going to read that last verse to you. He writes, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now we know that Jesus Christ succeeded in every way that Adam failed. Adam failed to protect his bride Eve from the serpent who was intimidating her. He failed to guard and keep the guard, which was his work to do. It was his job. He didn't do it. And he, he just did not engage in a mortal combat with the serpent, who probably was not a garden variety garden snake, but like the Nahash, as the Old Testament calls this great serpent, the devil and Satan. So a fearsome beast, perhaps. And he wouldn't give his life, but Jesus Christ did in battling the devil. But let's read the next section here, and I think it's going to make things even more clear. Let's pick it up in Romans chapter 5. Starting with verse 15, Paul writes, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the effect of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so what he's doing there, what St. Paul is doing there in the rest of chapter 5, he's basically just expanding on this Adam-Christ typology. And when it comes to Adam and what he, what he did along with Eve, 
plunging the human race into what, what Cardinal Newman called that great aboriginal calamity, original sin. We have to admit that this is a doctrine that a lot of non-Catholics find implausible, difficult to believe, difficult to buy into. If we have, and, and this is this is um, this is why Catholics. We'll get into this in just a second. Catholics cannot believe in something called polygenism. What does that mean? This idea that the human race has multiple first parents. That there are different groups of humans that kind of sprung up around the same time on planet Earth, and who really knows who our particular first parents might be. That will not work with Catholic theology because of the doctrine of original sin. And, and people misunderstand original sin a great deal. We're going to get into what the Catechism says about it. And if you want more on this, go to the last episode that we did on The Faith Explained in the, in the relevant radio archives on the app. But let's pick it up now at the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I want to read to you from some paragraphs here that are really key on this. Paragraphs 403, 404, and 405 in particular. But let me just read you something from paragraph 403. This is the Catechism here. Quote, The Church has always taught that the overwhelming misery that oppresses men and their inclination toward evil and death cannot be understood apart from their connection with Adam's sin and the fact that he has transmitted to us a sin with which we are all born afflicted, a sin which is the death of the soul. That's paragraph 403 in the Catechism. Now, when it says the death of the soul, this is really important for us to know. Because death came into the world through Adam, not just physically. And it is true, in Genesis chapter 2, God said, don't eat of that tree, don't eat of the fruit of that tree, because you will die if you do. And we know that physical death came into the world because of sin, but not just physical death, spiritual death as well. Think about this. Think about what, what Paul says in Romans 5.17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So when he says death reigned through the one man, he's not just talking about physical death, but spiritual death. And when the devil, when the Satan, when the tempter was speaking to our first parents in the book of Genesis about this, he, he, there was a grain of truth in what he said to them. When he said, hey, eat of the fruit, you will not die, you will surely not die. Well, they didn't die physically at that moment, but they did die spiritually. The love of God died in their hearts, the grace of God left. So at that point, even though they were physically still alive, they became essentially like the walking dead. So yeah, there were zombies even in the Bible right at the beginning. And we're all kind of spiritual zombies until we are baptized, till we get that life of God back in our souls. Because, don't forget, we are created with two things. We're created in the image and likeness of God. We talked about that in the last episode, image and likeness. It has to do with generation. How are we created in the image of God? It doesn't mean that God has ears, a nose, you know, limbs. Well, he does in the person of Jesus, his son, who still has this resurrected body. And he picked up, of course, uh, his human body at the incarnation. But God the Father, pure spirit, God the Holy Spirit, obviously pure spirit. But when, we're, when we say in Genesis, this is long before the incarnation happened, that we are created in the image of God, it means that we have a rational soul. We have a rational soul. And that's what separates us from the animals who operate by pure instinct. But image and likeness. Likeness is the life of God, is the grace of God, as we would say in the Catholic Church. That's what left 
just like Elvis left the building. That's what left humanity when Adam and Eve plunged us into ruin, the life of God, the grace of God. So that, that became a huge, huge problem. And God has to fix this and even sets this plan in motion. As we said in Genesis 3, uh, chapter 3, we have the proto-evangelium, the promise of the Messiah who was to come. All right, now let's let's keep going here. Let's look at the next paragraph in the Catechism. This is paragraph 404 in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and you can find it there. That's a little pun because remember, 404 not found. It's an internet thing. All right, all right. So let's find it here in the Catechism, paragraph 404. How did the sin of Adam become the sin of all his descendants? This, this is a big question because people always say it's it's such a shame that you're born into the world and, and your pristine soul, it's got this stain of original sin on it. How, what a shame. Otherwise, it would be just, just lovely. But that's not what's going on here at all. That's not what's happening at all. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. Now, Let's see what the Catechism says here. Let's keep going with uh, paragraph 404 here. How did the sin of Adam become the sin of all his descendants? The whole human race, it says, is in Adam as one body of one man. So we are all contained in that first parent, in, in a sense. We're, we're like the, the apple of his eye, if you will, not the, not the bad fruit. Uh, but the twinkle in your parent's eye, you probably heard that expression. We are all incipient in Adam. We are in potentiality in Adam. And Eve, of course, as well. Even Eve was it within Adam in a certain sense because God fashions her from his body. But this unity of the human race, the Catechism says, by this unity of the human race, all men are implicated in Adam's sin as all are implicated in Christ's justice. Still, the transmission of original sin is a mystery that we cannot fully understand. So we can't fully understand everything about it. But we can understand a lot about it. It goes on to say this, quote, But we do know by revelation that Adam had received original holiness and justice. He's in this good relationship with God, not for himself alone, but for all human nature. By yielding to the tempter, Adam and Eve committed a personal sin, but this sin affected the human nature that they would then transmit in a fallen state. Okay, this is really important, that the, the sin which they committed was, the fault was theirs alone. The guilt was theirs alone. So you say, well, why do I have to deal with this problem of original sin then? Even though the fault accrues to them, the fact of the matter is once they sinned, it affected their humanity, their human nature, and then they pass that on to all of their descendants. It's like a genetic defect. It's like a predisposition, just as some people have a, a genetic predisposition to certain cancers and other medical conditions. We have this predisposition to sin. And by the way, don't, don't go saying to yourself, how could they have done such a thing? I can't believe it. If I were in their place, I would never have said yes to the tempter. G give me a break. You and I probably would have done it even quicker. So don't fool yourself about that one bit. They were representatives and they probably did better than you and I would have done. But they gave in, and we would have as well, no doubt. The Catechism then goes on to say that this fallen state, they, they transmit their human nature in a fallen state, it's a sin which will be transmitted by propagation to all mankind. That is, by the transmission of a human nature deprived of original holiness and justice. And that is why original sin is called sin only 
in an analogical sense. It is a sin contracted and not committed, a state and not an act. So that's paragraph 404 of the Catechism. It's very important where it says it's a sin contracted, just like you might contract a genetic defect. It's not a sin that you committed personally, but it's a virtual guarantee that you will commit actual sins, and you do. So this is called concupiscence. This is a big money word uh, the theologians use, concupiscence, which has to do with the fact that we have this tendency towards sin because of original sin, because of our wounded human nature that Adam and Eve have passed on to us. But, so this idea that there's some sort of a stain on your soul, that's not a good uh, image for original sin. That's not what's going on at all. It's that we're missing something. When When we're conceived and born into the world, we are missing something. And it's extremely important, and it's far worse than coming into the world missing a limb, missing a a hand or a foot or a leg or an arm. We are missing the life of God. We're missing the likeness. We have the image, we've got the rational soul, but we don't have the likeness. And, And that is because of the fact of original sin. And we have to get it back, of course, in this new covenant time. The way we get that is when we are baptized, we're infused with the life of God in the Holy Spirit. So it's an absence, okay? So it's nothing that, that, that anybody actually did other than Adam and Eve themselves. So, so hopefully that's all clear and, and that makes sense. And for those who are kind of upset at them saying it's not fair, um, heed the words of St. John Chrysostom, a great, great preacher in the early church uh, known as the Golden Mouth. That's what Chrysostom means. Incredible Uh, imagery that he used in his homilies. This is what he said when he was preaching on Romans. He said, quote, just as all who descend from Adam inherit death, though they do not eat from the tree themselves. In other words, I didn't do it. I'm not the one who, who, who took the fruit. Although they do not eat from the tree themselves, so all who are joined to Christ inherit righteousness, though they do nothing to produce it themselves. End of quote. So you, you also did nothing to bring yourself back into that relationship with God. Christ did it for you. So if you if you are mad at the fact that Adam lost this, then uh, don't be mad at the fact that Christ has given it back to you. You had nothing to do with either one, but you get to be the recipient of this great, great grace that we have, which actually leaves us even better off than we were in the beginning. And when you when you go to the Easter Vigil, you hear the famous exalted that's sung in the Easter Vigil. It's so beautiful. It talks about the necessary fault of Adam. And you sort of scratch your head. What's going on? Oh, Felix Culpa, you know, this happy fault, this necessary sin of Adam, which gained for us so great a Redeemer. Because again, as Genesis says, God puts that plan into motion right away of the redemption. Okay, so... so One of the reasons why polygenism is a problem is that there is one man, Adam, who plunged us into ruin, and the one Jesus Christ brings us back into God's grace. So it's it's a one-for-one trade, if you will. Um, We'll we'll talk more about polygenism in the next episode because I don't have enough time to give a full explanation of, of why we can't believe this as Catholics. But we'll get into that in a little bit more detail next time. But I do want to make the point here, when the Catechism says that we are not totally corrupted, human nature has not been totally corrupted just because original sin is in the world. Calvin was wrong. Johannes Calvin, John Calvin, who was one of the big guns in the Protestant Revolution, he had this doctrine of total depravity. 
He says that human beings are totally corrupted without God, that there's nothing good in us. That is not the case at all. That is a lie. It is not true. Human nature has not been totally corrupted. And, um, and we have to understand that there is, there is good, of course, in, in, in all of us, even in, in the worst criminal. There's the goodness of, of creation. And, and obviously, a lot of people do not end up where they should be uh, in life and in eternity because they have chosen sin, because they have said no to God. But we're, so we're fallen, but we're still good. We're still good. God doesn't make junk. That's an important thing to remember. Okay, now let's let's read the last few verses here of the chapter and get right to the end. Look at verse 18. Then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now this is a tricky verse to understand, this, this next uh, two verses here, 20 and 21. Paul writes, law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, it's a little bit of a tricky uh, couple of verses there. What, What does this really mean? Law came in to increase the trespass. The law arrived, obviously through Moses, the law was given, and that made the trespass worse. And increase the trespass. What, what is that all about? Well, sin was still in the world, and people could still know that they were sinning because uh, they're violating their conscience if it's properly functioning. They, they know that they're, they're breaking somehow the, the laws of the eternal God. The Ten Commandments are kind of written on, on our conscience. Our conscience can become corrupted, of course. We talked about that before. Romans chapter 1 comes to mind. It's, but it becomes worse once, once the law becomes a revealed reality. It's kind of like if you're driving down the road, you might have a feeling that you're speeding, like, ah, maybe I'm driving a little bit too fast here. It's a residential neighborhood. But once you see that sign, you know, speed limit, 40 or 55, whatever it might be, then you know, you have no excuse anymore. You know what the law is and you know that you're breaking it. So it does kind of make it worse. But ignorance does mitigate somewhat the culpability. It's like when Jesus was standing before Pilate. He said, hey, Pilate, the one who handed me over to you is, is guilty of a greater sin. What you're doing is still bad. You're still a coward. You're still not going to be just here. But guess what? The one who handed me over to you, Judas, is guilty of a much worse sin because he knows more. He knows more. He has more information. And yet he still did it. And Pilate, of course, starts to really freak out at this point. But that, that's a good example of what's going on here. So, so the, But it doesn't mean that the law is bad. Just because the law, the law reveals what sin is... It also shows us, man, I'm not living up to it. None of us do without God's help. But as St. Augustine said, this is what St. Augustine said about this, the law was given that grace might be sought, and grace was given that the law might be kept. So the law shows us what God's standard is and how we don't measure up, and then God gives us his grace so that we can actually do it and live it out. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. And we're going to move on to chapter 6 in the next episode of our series on Romans. You can read that in advance. But right now, we're going to jump into the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. Let's go. Okay, today's Faith Explained Q&A mailbag question comes to me from Joel in Pacific Palisades, California, who's listening on the relevant radio app. And by the way, you can send me your question as well. 
You can email me. The address is faith at relevantradio.com or find me on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. And here's what Joel writes to me in his email. Hi, Kale. I have a lot of non-practicing Catholic family members. I guess you could call them cultural Catholics. They only seem to go to Mass when they feel like it, but even if they've missed a ton of Masses in between, they always come up and receive communion. How can I tell them that they can't do this? I was trying to explain to them that missing Mass is a mortal sin. They literally laughed at me out loud, and they said stuff like, are you telling me that this is on the same level as murder? Give me a break. So, Kale, how can I answer them? That's a really good question, Joel, and uh, I would imagine that many listening today have been in the exact same boat. How can we possibly explain to them that missing Mass on a Sunday or another holy day of obligation is a, is a grave sin that, that'll get you in the same place as committing murder or, or uh, another mortal sin, eternal separation from God if you don't repent? That seems a little bit much. Now, why is it the case? Why is this the case? Well, Let's, let's talk about why Sunday worship is obligatory, as well as the other holy days of obligation. Let's answer that question first. Okay, so why is it that we must worship on Sunday? Well, first of all, we are worshiping creatures by nature. And if we don't worship the one true and living God, we will worship something else in the creation. And it's going to be either ourselves or, or an item or another person, whoever or whatever is on the throne of our hearts, as it were. That's that's the object of our worship. So let's pray that it's Almighty God. And of course, the first commandment, no other gods but me. That That is still in effect in the New Covenant time. The third commandment, of course, keeping the Sabbath holy, also, of course, still in effect. And the church has the ability, and this is one, th- one thing that Jesus said to Peter and, and the other apostles as well, is that they have the authority to bind and loose. In other words, they can create family obligations among the people of God, and they have the power to do that. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, we read these words from Jesus. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, that whole chapter, Matthew 18, has to talk about um, the law of the community, if you will. And, and we, we see this, of course, played out. In the church now, why Sunday? Obviously, the church moved from Saturday Sabbath worship to Sunday worship because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and the church can impose this on us, uh, just as a, a, the head of a family can impose family rules within the household. And if you're a child who's who's a minor living under that household, so as long as it's not breaking the, the moral law, you're obliged to keep those family obligations because. It's kind of a sin for you to disobey your parents unless it's a, uh, they're asking you to do something immoral, unethical, that sort of thing. But here's what Jesus said in Luke twenty two nineteen, And of course, this is one of the accounts of the institution of the Eucharist. He says, do this in remembrance of me. So he's commanding for this to be done. He's commanding for this to happen again and again. Remembrance, that word we translate as remembrance is anamnesis. It means to make present. And that's why all of the members of the early church gathered on the first day of the week to do what? Acts 20, verse 7, to break bread. To break bread. What do you think they're really doing? Of course, they're celebrating the Eucharist. It's kind of an image that's used. So this is one reason why we have to do it. So the Mass is heaven on earth. Christ is there, and 
when we receive Christ in the Eucharist, we can't get any closer to God without dying. And, and this is it. It's, it's, it is kind of a dress rehearsal for death and being with God for all eternity. So if you don't want to go to heaven on earth in the Mass, you might say, why should God let you into heaven, heaven? <laughs> um, that's one way of looking at it. But I also want to deal with, Joel, the, the um, anecdote that you gave about your family members missing a whole whack of Masses uh, in between and then presenting themselves for a communion. Well, this is what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says in paragraph 2181. So you can always say, Joel, this isn't me. I, I didn't write this stuff. I'm not making it up. This is paragraph 2181 of the Catechism. It says, The Sunday Eucharist is the foundation and confirmation of all Christian practice. For this reason, the faithful are obligated to participate in the Eucharist on days of obligation unless excused for a serious reason. For example, illness, the care of infants. I mean, if you've got a very young infant, you know, you can't really bring them out in public. Their immune system isn't strong enough. And that sort of thing, or or dispensed by their own pastor. That's another reason your pastor has to dispense you. And if you deliberately fail in this obligation, the catechism says you commit a grave sin. Okay, so we're we don't we're not making this up. It's in the catechism, paragraph twenty one eighty one. Now, what happens if you know that you're guilty of a grave sin or a mortal sin? Well, again. In paragraph 1385 in the Catechism, it says this, Anyone conscious of a grave sin must receive the sacrament of reconciliation before coming to communion. So it seems like those family members of yours, they may not know this, they may not be aware or conscious that they've committed a grave sin, but you know, if you tell them, now they know. And, and you think ignorance is bliss? No, you're actually, you're, you're doing them a favor by telling them the truth. Ignorance is not bliss. They're objectively in a bad state here. And this comes from, the catechism in turn is basing it on the teaching of St. Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 29, St. Paul says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and, and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So he's talking about those committing sacrilegious communions, receiving our Lord Eucharistically in a state of objective mortal sin. So it, it, it is serious stuff. And, it, and again, to the secular mind, it seems preposterous. But like my old professor used to say, God never checked with me about anything. It might seem preposterous to you, but it is the way it is. So all you can do is share the truth with them, pray for them, and hope the Holy Spirit convicts them uh, that they might uh, start doing it right. Uh, go to confession if they need it, and certainly go to Sunday Mass. Even if you don't, you're not predisposed to receive communion, you're not in a state of grace, you still have to take part in the Sunday obligation. Uh, don't forget that as well. All right, so if you have other questions, you can uh, send them to me. The email address is faith at relevantradio.com. Follow me on Twitter at Kale Clark. And I'll see you later today on the Kale Clark Show, 5 p.m. Central, right here on Relevant Radio. And in the next episode tomorrow, 1230 Central of The Faith Explained. God bless you.